0: Hello and welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every programme, we talk about a new book that looks at Europe and find out what the author has to say. In this episode, that author is Matthew Kelly and his book is Finding Poland from Tavistock to Hrozdova and Back Again. The backdrop is Poland and the fate of a family that builds a home in the east of the country during the 1920s and 30s before the Soviets, war and deportation intrude. It's also a very personal story because the author is writing about his own family. So without any more from me, here's Matthew Kelly. Opposite me, here in central London, we've got Matthew Kelly, who's the author of Finding Poland from Tavistock to Hrozdova and back again. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Welcome. Hi.
0: Um, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed this book because it's a fascinating part of the world. It's a fascinating chunk of history. And it's all, it's all told with a, a personal story, a thread that runs all the way through it, which really drives the narrative on and really personalizes the whole story. Um, we'll get into all of that in a second, but can you just start off with, just give us a, a, a little bit about yourself. You know, okay. Where did you come from? What are you doing now? And, and more to the point,
1: um, how did
0: you come to write this book?
1: Well, I'm um, the son of a mother of Polish background and a father um, of Irish background, um, both um, second generation, I suppose, immigrants um, to the UK. Uh, they were both born in the fifties. I was in the seventies. Um, so, so that's a little bit. That's very broad terms. Of my background. I grew up in Devon, principally, um, and um, and now I'm a lecturer in history at the University of Southampton, um, and. But I began my career um, working on Ireland um, rather than Poland. So my PhD was in Irish history. I wrote a a dry and serious book um, about Irish history. Um, And then I started to think about uh, my Polish um, background and how it was that on one side of the family, at least, um, I am uh, the son of Poland um, in some respects and how it could be that that, um, I grew up in Devon um, and so on,
0: and the, and this story of yours in Devon—it's because you had a grandmother who lived in this place, Tra- Tavistock, that, yeah. that's mentioned on the cover. Yeah. And you start the book off by talking about travelling to see her when you were just mm. a small child. So in yeah. in the late seventies, early eighties, and what that was like, and, and the location that she found herself in. What kind of figure was she like in your
1: in your childhood? Mm. So my so my great this is my great grandmother rather than my grandmother, um, Plabapcha. Um, in Polish, which I'm afraid is about as far as my Polish goes, <laughs> um, she lived on a small, uh, small holding um, in West Devon, just to the west of Tavistock, just off of Dartmoor um, uh, by the time I was born it was no longer a working farm her husband had died a decade or so um, before and we used to have what are now sort of easily remembered as idyllic summer holidays on this you know, disused small holding um, in West Devon and Which,
0: for those that don't know it, anyone listening around the world, Devon is one of the most beautiful counties of England. It's out, out west, just before Cornwall, yeah. and it's beautiful.
1: It is. I mean, it is lovely. And it's lovely and it's, you know, it's washed by the Gulf Stream. And so the climate is fairly warm, um, much, certainly um, in the summer. And, you know, of course, it attracts many, many um, tourists. But the further west um, you go in Devon, the sort of wilder and in some ways more desolate um, it becomes as it begins to, I suppose, seed into um, Cornwall. Um, And so we had these actually very isolated um, summer holidays on the farm, as we always called it, um, cut off, um, really, from, from lots of places. But one of the things I sort of talk about in the early part of the book is the way that I became conscious as a child of the exoticism of this trip, this annual trip on the train down from... Um, at one point from London at other times um more locally in Devon, to this small holding and we were traveling from you know very very ordinary um british uh very ordinary british life um to this strange little pocket um of Poland um in the west of Devon, where my great grandmother lived on her own widowed unable to speak english um cooking for us these rather exotic and yet very sort of simple, wholesome um, dishes um, and babbling away to herself in Polish. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I, I it, it feels like a sort of slightly uh, almost pretentious sort of thing to say. But gradually as a child, I began to realise that there was, the distance we were travelling was, um, in a sense, metaphorically, symbolically, I don't know, much greater than men, the distances that many of my friends were traveling at that time to spain or to portugal mm-hmm. or where people went in the early 80s um and um and so yeah we went off to this sort of for a couple of weeks a year we lived in this sort of strange little paradise in
0: uh, and 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 then as you grew up and you you went to university you started going to uh, develop your career as a as a historian, you started to probe it a little bit more. I mean, away from the, as you say, the dry book about uh, <laughs> about <that's> Irish right. <laughs> about Irish history. I, we, we we can get the name of the book uh, in yeah, sure. at, at the end of this. There's um one of the. Uh, I mean, if we look at the historical background yeah. that lies underneath the whole of the book. Uh, yeah. There's one particular quote that that came up. Um, and it's out of the first world war emerged a series of ethnically diverse and deeply divided states weakly buttressed by a liberal pluralism the outcome of the second world war uh, semicolon the outcome of the second world war was a series of relatively ethnically homogeneous states now your babcha or mm. great babcha or whatever you would you would mm. call her she was a product of this whole process yeah. where you kick the story off into war Poland Mm -hmm. and it's how this, how the war then intercedes what happens during the war. And then what actually happens after the war that kicks out bits of the Polish diaspora who have fled, come back to Poland Mm -hmm. or or been displaced, come back to Poland and then are displaced once again. That's the backdrop of the whole thing. But the key thing that you also mentioned early on is that yours is an odd story because it's a family that survives what was a very, very traumatic experience. Mm,
1: Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah i mean the the book is is clearly shaped by the fact that it does talk about it does tell the story of a nuclear family that survived enormous disruptions um and dislocations and one of the big themes running through the book um for for me was the way in which it's a it, it explores the nature of ethnic politics um in early 20th century europe now this is of course a story that's familiar to us through the rise of Nazism, um, and so on and so forth. But that's the most ex- extreme end of a much broader European um, it's European phenomenon, which profoundly shaped um, Poland in the two decades of its uh, interwar um, independence. I mean, Poland, of course, had been partitioned in the late um, 18th century. There wasn't an independent Poland until... Um, immediately um, after the First World War, or I should say there hadn't been an independent Mm -hmm. Poland for uh, 130 years or so um, at that point. And one of the great questions facing um, post-war Europe was what form would the new Poland take um, as it sort of, in a sense, reassembled itself in the wake of the collapse of the Russian-Austro-Hungarian and German um, empires. And um, there was no straightforward um, answer um, to this question. Um, Early 20th century Polish nationalist politics are shaped by a series of kind of competing views of what Poland should be. Um, Should the Poles attempt to, in a sense, reconstruct their own former empire or commonwealth, um, an early modern phenomenon, um, which... You know, stretched across Central Europe? Um, or should Poland be formed into a more ethnically um, homogenous um, state mm-hmm. um, with, with borders defined by ethnicity?
0: Well, of course, uh, when you go back to, to the Wilsonian points and this yeah. whole idea of em- an emerging nationally constructed Eastern Europe, it was a lot more straightforward in Western Europe. Even though there are a lot of questions there, uh, not least of all the Irish question that, yeah. the, that you've just sure. mentioned, but there, there have been questions there. but certainly the further mo- the further east you moved, the more confused it was. And it wasn't exactly a binary choice behind a, a Commonwealth, because of course, at one point the Lithuanian Polish Commonwealth stretched from the Baltic to the Black yeah. Sea. And I think there's quite a few people who would have yeah. had a, That's a problem certainly with wasn't that. Plausible. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and this other choice of, of a much more nationally constructed poland well Mm -hmm. we all know what happened to poland and that was partly because that too was impossible yeah you know you had so many competing interests that you could you could construct something that was roughly centered around warsaw Mm -hmm. a lot further east than it is now yeah and stretching up with curious little spit of land which became known of course in the build up to the Second World War as the Polish Corridor mm-hmm. and coming out near Gdynia, I believe, just north of, right. of what was then Danzig is now Gdansk. Yeah. Um, but a, a good way of looking at this in the con- in the context of the book is looking at the area around where your family lived, which is uh, Hruzdova. Mm. And then you mentioned something called the Kresi. Yeah. Is is that how I pronounce it? That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and this is generally uh, an idea that uh, uh, an area that is a, a lot further east than where we would now associate Poland
1: mm-hmm.
0: with in an area where there were, it's a very feudal area. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, you have a lot of uh, Polish nobility, mm-hmm. uh, but it takes in a vast sweep of other nationalities. Yeah. You get a lot of Belarusian, Lithuanian, uh, Ukrainian peasants, mm-hmm. and you also have large Jewish communities. That's right. Uh, it's a, Can you just give us a picture of what life was like in this part? Because this really shows what the contradictions about this this uh, interwar Poland.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this. So, um, I mean, you, you describe very well the, the the situation. And so, the border that's established after the First World War runs a little east of a line from Vilnius in the north to Lvov. Um, in the south so from the present capital of um, lithuania in the south down to the second city um, of ukraine taking in in between a big slice of of belarus um today so um you know and this at the time was an area of very very of of tremendous um diversity both linguistic um and um religious and as you say the lithuanians belarusians ukrainians um, Poles, some Germans, some russians um, and and also Jews, some of which identified as, as, as in a sense purely Jewish, but many of whom would have combined their Jewish religious identity with a national um, identity um, depending um, depending on on where they were and the degree to which they were urbanized, and so on. Um, what complicates the picture is. Also, the diversity you you know refer to or invoked in terms of class and where you have you know um, different levels in a sense of national consciousness at worked at work, which to a considerable extent reflected class status or or socio economic um, position. So there is a there's a there's a, a sort of declining if you like kind of Polish mobility. Um, in the area and, and, a, and a Polish middle class who feel strongly and patriotically Polish. Um, and it, it's far too sort of simplistic and cliche to say they're in a kind of sea of Ukrainian peasantry or Belarusian peasantry or Lithuanian peasantry because you're seeing a kind of an emergence of a, a, a middle class um, and indeed a sort of gentry class within each of those um, groups who are strongly identifying with um, national identity. Um, and And Poland, in many respects, or Polishness is their most significant other you know what they are not is polish um, and and to a considerable extent, that defines this it's, This becomes quite complex area um, to talk about certainly it 's controversial because um, you know any notion that the other three nationalities are in a sense trailing in the wake of a more advanced Polish nationality or uh, or whose definition um, is dependent on Polishness, of course, that that notion is likely to sort of annoy um, mm. representatives of those identities And, of course, today. That's, be-
0: that's before we start talking about the Jewish population of the area, some of, right. some, some of which was extremely traditional yeah. and some of oh, which certainly. was uh, fitted in exactly with what you're talking yeah. about, uh, a kind of nascent middle class, which is growing yeah. up around big urban centres such as yeah. Vilnius, etc.
1: Yeah, no, that's ab- absolutely right. So, I mean, the Jewish population is to be found, you know, throughout the area. Um, living in some respects independently, in some respects not, um, mm-hmm. of the um, wider population. Is it, and, in, and in numerical terms, is very, very um, significant. In urban areas can be approaching 50% of the population. So mm-hmm. there's very, very large numbers of, of Jews in the area, as well as Poles and so on. Okay, Um,
0: let's talk about what this Polish state is. Um, mm -hmm. Apart from being surrounded by people that could be perceived as enemies, and certainly when I lived in Poland, one thing was that anybody from the west of the country spoke of Germans as the big threat, and anyone from Mm -hmm. the east of the country traditionally, perhaps in their family, spoke of Russia as the threat. And it was a very militarised time, despite the fact that obviously we had a defeated Germany after Mm -hmm. the First World War that was uh, nominally you know, demilitarized. There was a real, you know, the First World War, in fact, kept on going in Poland for quite a while because of the effects of the Russian Revolution. And they reached, uh, Stalin himself was involved, wasn't it, in the the push on Warsaw that was then defeated? Am I correct? I think he was actively involved in that. Yes. I
1: think so. But, um, yeah, certainly at the end, I mean, Poland's eastern borders, and to some extent actually Poland's western borders as well, are um, established following a series of of, at- of wars, um, certainly armed conflicts, and, and in some cases, it can certainly be described as wars um, between um, between principally between. I say the Russians. I mean, really between the Soviet the nascent Soviet army, the Red Army, um, and um, Polish soldiers, most of whom had fought in one of the f- Defeated imperial armies, um, some of whom had fought as um, Polish legionnaires that had a more complex relationship with those imperial. Armies. Let's just put it like that. Um, and then some of them
0: fought on in the White Armies in the, the, Rus- in the yes. Russian Civil War as well.
1: Yes, indeed. So, so as you say, I mean, this is high. You know, the region remains high, not only highly militarized after the First World War, but also actively engaged in in um, conflict. Um, and, um, and Poland is almost defeated um, as it struggles with um, the Soviet Union in order to um, establish um, its eastern. Um, borders and the big question of course is where that border will lie mm. um, and that that comes through um, a series of struggles and ultimately leads as we were saying before to that border you know to um, the east of um, Vilnius and Lvov um, and it's a solution which doesn't satisfy you know anybody mm-hmm. it divides what Ukrainian Lithuanian Belarusian nationalists think should be the uh, you know the uh, the proper geographical frontiers of their new uh, nation um, states it puts um, polish it puts a Polish population on both sides of that border mm-hmm. um, just as it puts Ukrainians and so on both sides um, of that border so as the Polish state attempts to establish itself, having won a series of um you know remarkable in some ways fortunate you know victories um one famously known as the miracle on the vistula just as uh, the river that flows through warsaw that, um, that was when the the soviet forces were stopped yes yeah. that's when the soviet forces were stopped and um, and it's shortly after that a, a peace is is um agreed um and and so you have a a very fragile state which has to deal within its borders not only with people whose nationality um, uh, was, was non-Polish or at least susceptible to a non-Polish um, nationality, but also people who might have found themselves fighting on different sides in those conflicts that carried um, mm-hmm. on after um, 1918. So you've got a very, very vulnerable state Um, You've got a state also that is, thanks to sort of Wilsonian principles, um, is broadly liberal, broadly democratic, but that um, is comprised of political parties which are not necessarily so. Mm -hmm. Um, And Polish politics in the 20s and 30s is in some ways, to some extent, dominated by by a conflict between um if you like, ethnic Polish nationalists um, and a very, very loose and fractious coalition of everybody else, mm-hmm. which includes, um, which includes the left, um, as it also includes um, uh, Jewish political parties, some of which were strongly socialist in their um ideological mm-hmm. orientation, and parties represent, re- representative. Um, of the national um, minorities,
0: mm-hmm. it was also dominated by a, a, a central figure, General Piłsudski. Yeah. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Marshal Piłsudski um, is is a is a is a very very complex figure. Um, he he's associated with he's associated with the sort of more pluralist notion um, of Poland. Um, and he's and he's a figure that it is easy to romanticise and was romanticised. I mean, there was a cult um, of Pilsudski and for people like my great grandfather, who was a very young man, was involved in these military um, struggles of, um, in the um, east of Poland. Um, Pilsudski had a sort of heroic, was a heroic um, figure, uh, sort of a, a, a symbol of of the reborn um, Poland. In power, he proved much less. Um, the the figure of in a sense pluralist Poland and more the sort of authoritarian that mm. is trying to hold things um, together he uh, leads a coup in 1926 mm-hmm. um, and this this leads to a form of sort of authoritarian government in Poland with the, with the, with the, with, the, with some trappings I suppose of a kind of parliamentary politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and um elections but the coup sees the ascendancy of the army um within um Polish politics and it's a sort of classic case of yeah. the army stepping in um to to in a, to to um I suppose make up for the the, the civilian failure to state Yeah the weakness of the, the state. state. The it's a,
0: it's state. a very into war story. It's a very very into war story. Yeah. Um And then, of course, this interwar period ends quite dramatically, Mm -hmm. not just with the German invasion, but with, uh, on the background of the uh, Mm -hmm. Molotov-Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the division of Poland, the slicing the country in half, and your family end up in the eastern half.
1: Yes. Yeah. I should say so. uh, So, um, in advance of that, um, one, one thing that happens in the 1920s is this state struggles to um, secure itself, um, uh, the Polish government encourages Poles to settle um, in the East. And it's a quite attractive proposition for demobilized um, soldiers. I mean, you know, young, a young newly married person like my great grandfather, um, on the one hand, but also they... There are so-called military settlers who are in effect paid for their military service with land Mm. um, in the east of Poland. Now, that just makes the ethnic tensions in the region um, worse because the people who expected that land, um, that peasantry we were referring to earlier, find themselves having to um, share the largesse Mm -hmm. with um, with, um, settlers, um, sometimes referred to as colonists. and um and, and and so the the sort of if you like, the kind of nationalist resentment of the Polish state is enhanced by social and economic resentment of, mm. an, of a new elite that 's sort of imposed on on eastern um poland um, so uh, yes, so at the point when um Poland is partitioned between the soviet union um and Nazi germany um my great-grandparents and their two young daughters. Um,
0: just for the record, that's uh, Rafał, Hannah, Wanda and Dorusha.
1: That's right, yeah.
0: yeah. I uh, had to scribble the names down. <laughs> I? I, I got lost uh, a bit with all of that. But what, can I just point out, especially yeah. seeing as you've just been talking about their their interwar life uh, in yep. uh one of the best things about the book is that it's interspersed with a lot of very, very lovely personal photographs which i assume they're all from your personal collection yeah. uh, or your family's personal cl- yeah. cl- collection um you know wherever they are whether they're in central asia whether they're in uh, devon or whether they're in uh, in in poland itself and mm. that really brings alive who the people are and what they're doing mm. anyway sorry yeah. for interrupting back no. to poland
1: yeah no well, and i th- and, 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 i mean that's it i mean i'm trying to the photographs are part of are part of uh, you know a wider attempt in the book to blend sort of family history which allows sentiment in um, with a more serious historical you know treatment um, of these themes and the challenge I think one of the biggest challenges of the book for me as a historian was to see how a professional historian writes about something that he obviously has a very close kind of emotional sentimental um, attachment to Um, and you know the, the move of these poles towards to the east yes in some ways it's it's a state under stress this is the way, this is one of the ways in which poland is tr- is trying against the odds to secure those eastern borders but it 's also accompanied by by a great deal of idealism and optimism um, and hope and I think for people like um, my uh, my family um, they were driven by i suppose a belief that the primitive and backwards crescer the borderlands um, were open to improvement, could be brought into mm-hmm. um, civilization. The 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 sort of the illiterate peasantry um, could be schooled, and um, so on. And they were in fact both school teachers. Um, and I think there is scope, on the one hand, to recognise the way in which they are, in a sense, agents of the state, if you like, part of a kind of colonising um, drive um, by the state. And on the other hand. To recognise that they could have been sincere um, in their in their, if you like, civilising um, mission. Such often is the you know the ambiguity uh, of empire. Though many Poles would object to the mm-hmm. use of that word to describe what was going on. Mm. Uh, um, can we leap forward to, yes, to, yeah.
0: to to the point at which this this ends? And it's not yeah. it's not the partition of Poland itself. It's the deportations which you survive, yeah. which you described very vividly and uh one of the most unusual things was you, you you describe it through the eyes of what the children must have felt. Um let's just give yes. the details. Three hundred thousand plus people yeah. uh four deportations, the yeah. first of which was in February, I think. That's the one that your family was caught up in. Uh the dead of night, N K V D, turn up, yeah. um minus forty degree temperatures mm-hmm. and you get a, a, I presume, a very very small window of opportunity to pack a couple of things, yeah. and then suddenly you're on a truck going yeah. east.
1: Yes, it, it, I'm not, you know the most. When you read the memoirs of of poles from this period, the, almost always the most vivid part of it is the night in which they are deported by, as you say, the NKVD by the Soviet um, secret police. They were actually in the second deportation, which was April oh, of 1940. Okay. Um, uh, though I. Though though perhaps it was less cold, I'm not sure it was any less traumatic. Um. Believe me,
0: at that time (laughs) of year in Poland, it is not that much colder, uh, not that much warmer.
1: Yeah. So, no, that's quite right. So, um, yeah, so this is within about a year or less than a year uh, of the partition, um, the Soviet Union has taken taken this part of Eastern Europe. Eastern Poland and has amalgamated it with the Soviet Socialist Republics um, mm-hmm. of Ukraine, Belarus um, and Lithuania. Um, my family were, as I said, in this town called Hrozdova, which is now in Belarus, just south of the Lithuanian um, border. And those series of deportations in 1940, as you say, saw the Soviets um, deport around about 350,000 Poles, ethnic Poles um, from um, the border, like this borderland country, as I say, now integrated into those Soviet states. Was it just to
0: clear out the um, the Polish population from areas that they didn't want to have the the kind of Polish nationalist question there?
1: Yeah, broadly speaking, yes. Um, I mean, they are it, what it, it's presented. It's presented as um, as dekulakization as mm-hmm. removing these landowning owning um, elements um, that. Uh, would that as part of uh, Soviet revolution, um, but it very quickly um, starts to look like ethnic cleansing. Um, that the, the, it's the Poles themselves that are being removed from the east, rather than um, a cl- rather than the anti-revolutionary um, class. Um, but, but if you look at the pattern of the deportations, it does follow. Um, It it does follow certain sort of social groups, beginnings with the elites of the society in February and and sort of gradually working down Mm. over the course of the the, um, deportations. The experience itself was was certainly traumatic, dead Mm -hmm. of night. Um, It was often, not always actually, but often that people were very roughly um, treated. And of course the February one was unexpected, the April one... um, less so, um, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the case of the February deportation, they were deported on trains and cattle trucks to Siberia. Um, the April deportation, which included my family members, uh, was to Kazakhstan, mm-hmm. so to um, Central Asia.
0: Okay, we'll talk about Kazakhstan yeah. in just one moment. I wanted to go back to this idea that uh, mm-hmm. that the Soviet leadership was very concerned not to leave any kind of um embryonic polish nationalist yeah. feeling behind and this the backdrop of this that's best known of course is the massacre at Katyn, yes which was going on at around this time it, it was uh in a sense decapitating any polish you know a, a anything that around which uh, a polish state could reconstitute itself
1: yeah no that's absolutely right i mean the there's a You know, there's a very long history of Russian-Polish antagonism, of course, um, that precedes the partitions um, and was very evident uh, during the 19th century. Um, I mean, in some ways, Russia itself, Emerges at the expense of the old Polish-Lithuanian, well, in some ways, I mean, quite distinctly, um, in the expense of the old Polish-Lithuanian um, Commonwealth. There is a sense that this is there is an this is the, the hereditary enemy of Russia mm-hmm. um, is Poland. Um, feels much less immediate, of course, today. Um, but if we think about the early the early twentieth um, century, that was certainly. Um, the case, um, and of course the the wars of the immediate of the post of post nineteen seventeen we were talking about earlier are in living memory. Mm-hmm. Um, so my great grandfather is a very young, very young um, soldier in nineteen eighteen, um, and in nineteen thirty nine he's a reservist um, mm-hmm. in only an early middle age. Um, so there's an element of vengeance at work here of of. Russian slash Soviet settling old scores. Um, there's a. It's. It's also indicative of a, yeah an ancient sort of en- enmity between the two peoples, and then it's also um, laced with the new kind of Soviet ideologies, in w- which identifies the Poles as inherently counter revolutionary, mm-hmm. um, and um, um, as so so that and the poet so it's not just that Polish nationality has to be obliterated for those reasons, but also that um, they stand in the way of, uh, of the ideological project of, of, of Stalinism uh, mm-hmm. in that regard. But there is a layer to this that I try to bring out in the book, which in some ways I think makes the picture a bit more interesting, um, is that is Soviet thinking in this time also recognises the power of nationality. And, um, and we have to remember, of course, that the Soviet Empire is multi-ethnic, um, and it's troubled throughout this period um, by um, ethnic slash nationalist um, difficulties, particularly on the periphery, where you know the Soviet Union is trying to assert control um, over peoples who have, shall we say, a not very developed sense of Soviet identity, <laughs> um, and 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 this is you know this. And there's a strange kind of mirroring, actually, between Poland's struggles in, its, in the east um, with its eastern borders and Soviet um, fears about its western borders. So the Kreser, the borderlands, are a place of vulnerability for both the Soviet Union um, mm-hmm. and for Poland. Um, so and what the, what the Soviets do to the Poles... In the land that they acquire in nineteen thirty-nine, they've to some extent already done to Poles in um, the eastern Ukraine, where there's a where where Poles are deported to Kazakhstan. Not all, but uh, numbers are in nineteen thirty-six. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the Soviets have um, form mm-hmm. where, where this is is concerned.
0: It's fair to say that Polish communities in those bits of, of- Well, as you say, the the Ukrainian uh, Soviet Socialist Republic were actually targeted specifically during some of those political purges in 1936.
1: Yeah, they are. Yes, I mean there's the there's the purges that we we, it says we know a lot about, or at least seemed kind of prominent in our minds. The show trials and so on and Mm -hmm. so forth. And then there's also uh, uh, a a sort of I suppose a second layer um, to this, which um, does involve moving around um, suspect um, populations. The Cossacks are are another group.
0: Many Uh, North Caucasian uh, groups, the Chechens, uh, you obviously have the uh, Crimean Tatars a bit later on, Mm. etc. So it was something that that, uh, the Soviets, it was a fairly well-developed Soviet policy. And of course, one of the things about the Soviet Union is that they had Rather large areas that they could mm-hmm. ship people off to. You mentioned yeah. Siberia. Kazakhstan is mm-hmm. still one of the world's biggest countries, even yeah. now that it's uh, you know, even now in a in a dismembered former Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, and then uh, your family and other deport- deportees at the same time were shipped off to Kazakhstan, mm-hmm. uh, a lot further south than. Um, than Siberia, but by no means uh, uh, an agreeable climate. No, and this was the beginning of, of life on the Kolkhoz the uh, yeah. the collective farm. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, there's an important there's an important distinction here is that the poles are not sent to the gulag mm-hmm. um they're sent to pr- principally at,
0: at least the ones that you're talking about we're not talking talk about, about politically active or or, no. or or the elites that might be a threat to the soviet state no, that's
1: right we're talking here about we're talking here about civilian deportees and civilian deportees are generally speaking sent to the sent to soviet collective farms to to the which are depending really on, on the luck of individual families that are developed to varying degrees. So some arrive in areas where there's almost no infrastructure and they have to build um, these communities for themselves. Others arrive in well-established communities and enter into um, the workforce. And your family? Um, my family um, in northern Kazakhstan, I think were relatively lucky um, right. I think they were, they were part of a relatively developed um, farming um, community right. and it's part of you know uh, as you said, the Soviet Union um, is enormous um, and we think about the gulag and and this the, the Kolkhoz as you know penitentiary. As part of a sort of penitentiary regime. It's also part of a regime which is trying to unlock mm-hmm. um, the Soviet Union's enormous um, natural resources. Um, so, you know, logging in, in northern Siberia, or in this case, um, um, various kinds of farming. Um, in Kazakhstan, whether it's grazing cattle and whatever, I mean, one of the things that the Soviets are trying to do in Kazakhstan is to turn a nomadic people into a settled people, um, mm-hmm. and thus making them productive, uh, a productive part of the Soviet economy, rather than, I suppose, essentially subsistent. The, the, um,
0: there's a whole new, there's a whole other book in that. There's a whole isn't other it? book. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. I'm fascinated by that area. I, yeah. I think. Um, I think that it started off as as one particular Soviet republic. Uh, Tur- I think it was all called Turkistan or something mm, to start well, off so. with, and then it was gradually divided up. But but anyway, yeah, yeah. that is for that. That's, that's for another. Diff- <laughs> I, I need to track down whichever interview. book it's sent back to me, so I can find that yeah. out. Um, and it wasn't just Kazakhstan; they were also moved on a bit later to Uzbekistan.
1: Yes. The, yes. Uh, sorry, yeah.
0: can I just say that one of the. Best bits of that was, uh, I think, who was it? Uh, one of the daughters may have been your grandmother. Yeah, there, talked about learning how to spit through your teeth like a oh, camel. Oh,
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Um, that that little anecdote, really, about her learning to spit spit through the teeth like a camel, and picking up habits and things from from hanging around um the the Kazakhs. I mean my grandmother at the time was a bit of a scamp and it comes through very strongly, which we might talk about I guess, it comes through very strongly in, in, in the surviving correspondence, her uh, her sort of very lively personality. Um but in some ways, what's quite in what's in some ways most interesting about about that is 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 her mother's reaction to it. Um and again and again when you read about the experience of Poles in Siberia or Kazakhstan, um, it's it's it the parents sort of alarm at the way in which their children are growing up as they as they sort of run wild. I mean the parents led very highly disciplined lives, dominated by work and having to meet the norm. The children often didn't. Um, the children often run ran wild and um got to know I think the local community and the ways in which their parents, well their mothers, um didn't. And their mothers made found much of this pretty disturbing, what was happening to their their, you know, sweet little middle class daughters. Um, as they learned to spit like camels, um, and um, and and that's a, a part of. There's a more serious point to be made about how, under these extremely grueling conditions, people struggle to maintain notions of respectability mm-hmm. of appropriate gender roles, um, and and so on. All of which, both the primitive conditions and how they understood, you know, Soviet ideology, you know, was a Odds with mm-hmm. so women laboring um, on farms rather than devoting themselves to the domestic space and to bringing up their children um, was, was part of Soviet barbarity right this, is, this was the east um,
0: but they were they tended to be in in mainly Polish communities, although there was a lot of mixing i mean you're talking about in Uzbekistan, for instance, you're talking about andjan, which is uh, i mean it's still quite a major center
1: yeah yeah they were i mean it, dep- it depended on the individual experience, but yes yeah, some certainly were in predominantly polish polish communities um some some weren't and some would have been a Polish minority among the local among the local people i mean it depended an awful lot on where on, on what happened to um an individual um family i mean for an, at one point um they were working on a section of um, I think it's not strictly a section of the Trans Siberian Rail, but, but railway, but anyway, part of the, the, um, the Soviet railway network um, in Kazakhstan. And there they were among a whole series of, of um, different kinds of labourers, some of whom were Kazakhs, some of whom were Russians, some I think were former prisoners, um, uh, some of whom were would have been the wives of um, serving soldiers in the Red Army, and so on and so forth. So um, they're, that there, there again, these are very kind of very diverse. Communities of people who, for whatever reasons, have been, you know, found themselves in. You know, in Kazakhstan at Let, time.
0: let's anchor this down with a couple of dates um, yes. because I, I yes, after reading too. the book I've, I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I, I, I kind of lost track of, of exactly what happened at what, po- yeah. what point but you know obviously the, the big date coming up is Barbarossa Operation Barbarossa the, yeah. the the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union which was June 1941 yeah. uh, so we're going up to Barbarossa yeah. at this period are they still in Central Asia when yes, that happens? yes yeah, no, good
1: so yeah so so um, um, yeah, the crucial date is that. So they're deported in April 1940, and then Polish fortunes are changed with Barbarossa, as you say, in the summer of 1941. Um,
0: so things happen at a higher level than on the basic kolkos.
1: Certainly, what's happening of what's happening is that the the. the the Nazis and the Soviets are now, of course, enemies. You know, the, 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 Germany has invaded the Soviet Union, um, is attempting to continue its conquest um, east, and this has a transforming effect on the Poles in captivity in the Soviet, Soviet Union, because, of course, at this point the Soviet Union becomes an ally of Britain, France and the US, um, and Poland thus becomes an ally Um, of the Soviet Union, Um, and this immediately leads to negotiations between the Polish government in exile, which by this point is in London, um, brokered by the British government, um, and the Soviet government and Stalin. And essentially what happens um, is that Stalin agrees that all Poles in the Soviet Union can be amnestied. A general amnesty um, is announced in the summer of 1941, which um, gives the Poles... generally speaking, um, freedom of movement within the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. But what it does most crucially um, is it sees the release of Polish POWs um, in the Soviet Union, um, and they have permission to form a new army. Now, what quite will happen to that army is a question that is not answered um, immediately, but they um, assemble in Central Asia um, and Poles, free civilians, Start to move through um, the Soviet Union from Siberia, from parts of Kazakhstan, um, to um, to this army base, Mm -hmm. um, and and attach themselves to this new Polish army um, in in Central Asia. Um, And this, I mean, it's quite extraordinary what happens to individual families. During this process, very often, you know, the fathers, if particularly if they're reservists, are were imprisoned at the beginning of the war. Mothers and children deported, um, and there are and they are somehow they find each other Mm -hmm. um, in in the sort of army camps um, in Central Asia. And uh, you know, my family experience um, just that. Um, uh, Raphael comes to find them and Mm -hmm. finds them, um, as you said, I think it was in Uzbekistan, by that point in Uzbekistan, when he finds them and brings them um, back um, to the camp. So there's a little Poland in in Central Asia, running to tens of thousands, primarily soldiers, um, but with a large um, civilian um, component, Mm -hmm. um, living off um, soldiers' rations. I mean, um, one of the great difficulties that, one of the great difficulties um, that they faced was um, the readiness on, on Stalin's part to, um, at least temporarily, to feed this army, um, but not to feed the civilians who, in theory at least, were provided for wherever they were mm. um, in the Soviet Union and where, of course, they were working for their, their food.
0: And this is where we start to have a movement away from the Soviet Union as well. Yeah. They go south. They go south, and uh, I might as well mention... Uh, all the locations where they mm-hmm. go through, so that you can fill in a few details. But they start off by moving down into Persia, mm-hmm. now Iran, and then from there you also end up with, uh, especially some of the the children, some of the mothers, yeah. then move into what was then British India, yeah. uh, Karachi, now in Pakistan, yeah. and some, and it's certainly your relatives, then also do a supplementary move beyond Karachi yeah. into uh, what is now still India. Yeah, uh, but can you? kind of fill in a couple of the details there and and what it was like because this is the point where certainly your your grandmother, she's older Mm -hmm. for a start uh, you say she was a bit of a scamp, but mm-hmm. there's a lot more letters going back and forth, yeah. and there is a, much more of a sense of 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 a of a life being developed. In a sense, maybe the shock of being deported in the first place is, is over with, and you know the elder one of the two daughters, she's starting to obviously turn into a teenager. Yeah. It, it's this is a, it's a fascinating portrait at this point.
1: Yeah, no, I mean so. I mean the historical background very very briefly. Um, what to do with this Polish army? Um, s- s- um, the, the Soviets. It's the height of it's the height of the war. The Soviets are struggling um, to be able to provide for it and increasingly resent providing for it. Um, Soviet Polish relations are deteriorating because of continuing tension over over what will happen over what happened to Poland after the war. Um, um, and a decision is reached that the, the, this new army will be evacuated. It will be evacuated across the Caspian Sea um, into, as you say, into northern Persia, northern Iran.
0: A rocky voyage, I seem to a remember. A rocky
1: voyage, a very, very, very unpleasant voyage by ferry um, across the Caspian Sea. Many of them are by this point ill, um, ill, malnourished, um, and suddenly there's been a, a typhoid epidemic um, and so on. People are in a pretty dreadful um state. Um, uh, and one of the conditions attached to the evacuation of the army is that civilian relatives will go with it. Um, and as a civilian and that and what that means in effect is that the British will take responsibility um, for those civilians. So this is the point in the book where as you say it changes because there's this large surviving correspondence that's written between um, um Hannah Vanda and Danuta from um, uh, refugee camps in in um, in Iran and India and so on, um, but it also becomes a story that 's about the British Empire um, and where some of the most important material we have on this is to be found in the India office archives and and the Colonial office archives. Um, and so on um but in terms of writing writing about writing the story i mean the first couple of chapters which are primarily about poland and the soviet union um are are fairly yeah, grim much of them mm-hmm. and um and telling a story that is almost relentlessly miserable um, and then and then i hope at least the the, the tone lightens um considerably because i can use this surviving um family Correspondent, mm-hmm. which fleshes these people out as individuals as you say they're becoming teenagers and they're finding their own voice um and um, so on but they're also of course in a much happier position there's this fabulous um letter written by a british official um in in um, iran to somebody i think in the foreign office or the colonial office or something where he talks about how it's amazing what a glass of orange juice a day will do for a young child you know mm-hmm. the reviving effect a little bit of vitamin c has on yes. these kids who've been you know who are malnourished um at this point um but the letters are letters are i think charming i mean and, and it's strange it's it was strange actually for me to read them because i recognized in them mm-hmm. um my um grandmother who you know is in her late 70s and her elder sister who's I, just a little bit older, um, and um, and their, their 11, 12, 13, 14 year old voices mm-hmm. um, are so similar to their you know their eighty year old voices, and uh, without being making too sort of grand statements about you know personality and all the rest of it, um, it's still very striking. Absolutely, just how familiar it felt, how familiar they felt to me. Um, there's one quote that I dug out of the book
0: again yeah. because it seemed to encapsulate uh, what was happening in, not just in Persia but in India and it's where you say that India would mark memories more strongly but Persia was the place of deliverance yes and and, and that feeds into this idea that you know finally there's light yeah something's happening it's positive uh, you know and it's re- reflected in all of the material that you're able to draw from
1: yeah that's right i mean the the, the memoirs of this the memoirs of this if if the most traumatic part of the whole experience is the being loaded onto the, the cattle trucks. The moment when you feel an extraordinary sense of relief is when they tumble off, you know, the ferries um, in, in northern Iran, very often in a terrible state in terms of their health. Um, but they are, they, um, are, are free and mm-hmm. um, they are now in care. Um, and um, I remember one of the memoirs talks about how the the, the British m- must have looked at these poles and thought, "Who are these sort of crazy people?" As they all sort of fall to their knees on the beach and pray, mm-hmm. um, and so on. But I think there was that tremendous sense of um, relief and um, and liberation, deliverance, and it's and it's so structured around um, that was. That was the Soviet Union, and this is freedom. Mm -hmm. Um, um, It's very strongly, their narratives are very, very strongly shaped by that um, contrast between the two. They're certainly not out of the woods, though. Um, Right. And uh, I mean, on one hand, there's the great uncertainty as to what's going to happen to them. On the other hand, the fact that, uh, you know, the families are out of the Soviet Union doesn't change the fact that, of course, they're out of the Soviet Union because the men are going to go and fight. Absolutely. Um, and the women are now... The women and the children and, you know, some, I suppose, grandparents are are now refugees whose, mm. you know, capacity to determine their own future is, um, is, is diminished, to say the least.
0: They're, they end up... Um, and I, I know this especially from the, the bit of the book where you talk about uh, India they end up in in fairly self-sufficient but also yeah. integrated communities living among you know living in uh, among people that they probably never thought of when they were in eastern poland yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's an extraordinary uh, story of community and how the community integrates and you've got photographs of uh, the gravestones of of people who've ended up obviously passing away whether for whatever reason yeah. in what is now the depths of india
1: yeah no it's amazing i mean they 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 are they're, if we move from Iran, I mean, they 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 want they have to be moved out of Iran. Um, if you look the sort of um, the Whitehall correspondence of, about the poles in Iran, you know, is that you know, we're in they're in the way of the war. effort. they have to be got out, and there's this, this is a serious problem. So they're moved first to uh, to a huge camp in Karachi, which is a transit camp, and from there poles go not only to India but actually at larger numbers go to British colonies in East Africa. Um, but that's not what happens to my story, and I don't really go into that mm. at all. There's you'd write another book where, where Africa is the destination rather than India. Um, but but um, but you know my family end up um, in a place called Kolhapur, which is in the south of Maharashtra, so um, south um, of Mumbai, mm-hmm. um, where they are the guests of the Raja and um, a a purpose built village. Mm-hmm. um is uh, well built for them um, whereas you say they live as as a as a semi independent um community for a couple of years that takes them beyond the end of the war they they're actually um they they're kind of transit from um from Tehran. To Karachi, to India, is actually takes place over about I think three and a half years. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's long periods in each of those places. Mm -hmm. They're not constantly filling out the the war years. They're filling out the war years in exactly, and um, and they end up um, in India. And um, the poles that survived survived India, and most of those that got to India survived. You know, refer to themselves now, and they're all very elderly. Refer to themselves now as Polish Indians. Um, Mm -hmm. And many, you know, many of them spent their you know, seminal years in these refugee camps. So so my grandmother, so the younger of the two sisters, was born in 31, Mm -hmm. so she's deported when she's nine. Um, And so by, you know, 45, when Mm -hmm. she's in India, she's 14... Um, you know, she's so you know very significant extraordinary story.
0: years to to to, yeah, exactly. to go to go through this exact exactly. story. She's
1: going. She's being being an adolescent in refugee camps Absolutely, um, and
0: and in the meantime, her her father has, as you say, gone off to fight. Yeah. Um, certainly, in the book, apart from through the odd letter, and obviously we understand the circumstances. It's not the easiest time to send letters back and forth. So he really reappears. Uh, at the end of the war, yeah, and he's had quite a good war. He's fought in places like Monte Cassino and and Italy, the big campaigns there.
1: Yeah, yeah, Raffo has a good. He certainly has a good war. Um, he's he's advantaged actually by. I mean, the likelihood of be- him being killed um is reduced by the fact that he's um a middle-aged man and um and I'm not sure is that often in the front line as a result of that. Yeah, I can't imagine he yeah. is because they say he's
0: he's in his 40s by now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's in
1: his 40s by now and he's he's not in in the um front line. I think he's involved uh, certainly at one point with the bomb disposal unit, but I think possibly more in a coordinating role mm-hmm. than, than, he, than But he
0: he's a captain. captain by the end of the war. is so a captain nice. by the end of the war. Oh
1: yes he is very well. He has he has a good war. Um his his reports which are um in both the in the archives um the one pattern running through them is that he's a good pole um which of course which is polish which is code for he's a good patriot uh who likes to drink um, yes and it's clear he, it's clear he has a reputation for enjoying for enjoying a drink, um, and. Um, but apparently also being very popular amongst his men, mm-hmm. and I suspect there's a relationship between the two. Um, but yeah, he has a very, very good war, um, and at the end of the war is in northern Italy, um, waiting mm-hmm. to see what's going to happen. And, and his and his daughters and wife are in India. Okay, and this bring, to each other.
0: this brings us to. Uh, I mean, we've already been talking for quite a while, so we can't go on too much longer. But there certainly are two things that I want to talk about, one of which is the kind of political background to the end of the war and the question of, well, what happens not just to Poland, uh, which, of course, was the original reason why Britain and France declared war on Nazi Germany, but also um, what this meant for Poles, especially ones who had been displaced. Um, you say that you've got half the family, uh, more than half the family in India. You've got Rafael in uh, northern um, northern Italy. Apparently, is quartermaster at some point, isn't yeah. he? He certainly knows how to how to be at the right point in the supply chain. Um, So let's first talk about the political background, quite briefly. Uh, The political background is Churchill makes a promise, you know, saying, well, people can come here, we'd be delighted to have them here. But it's all a lot more complicated than that. And certainly, Poles are a bit aghast at what's happening to Poland itself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so so as we know, at the end of the war, you know, the war ends with obviously from the one side the Soviets and from the other side the other allies are um, entering entering um, Germany and taking Berlin, which of course means that the Soviets have effectively taken Poland. Yes, um, they of course it's presented well within with, their sphere of influence. Well within their sphere of influence is obviously presented as a liberation, but you know, by uh, but as the, as as the Soviets advance um, into Poland, um, they establish a puppet government um, yes. in Poland. And shortly before the end of the war, um, the Allies um, de-recognise, if that's the right word, um, the Polish yeah. government in exile and and recognise uh, this new um, government um, in Poland. So um, so one of the effects of that, actually, is all of the political representatives um, with the army and with the refugees, in a sense, lose their position. They're no longer representatives of a government. They're no longer the line of communication between a, a government recognised as legitimate by the Allies and, of course, these soldiers and refugees. Um, uh, at the end of the war, there's a general principle established within what we, what's emerging as the United Nations that there won't be forced repatriation of people who've been displaced um, by war. Um, and, um, and there's something around 200,000 Poles in uniform outside of Poland. Um, plus the civilian refugees, perhaps about a third of that number, civilian refugees. Um, primarily, primar- for various reasons, the, the, these refugees become the responsibility of the British government. Um, other nations are extremely reluctant to take them. A lot of them are already in, in Britain, in Scotland. There's a big crowd, as we know, um, in northern Italy. And then there are civilians in refugee camps in Africa and um, India, the British have to do something about this. Um, and uh, by the end of 1945, Poles are still sitting in army camps um, in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, so in uh, in 46, uh, so Churchill, one of the things that one of the things that, in a sense, the last things that Churchill does is he makes a very kind of broad and generous commitment um, to the Poles, which suggests strongly that they would be allowed to settle. Um, certainly within the Empire and possibly within the UK at the end of the war, and this becomes known as Churchill's Pledge, and the mm-hmm. Poles, you know, hang on to it very, very strongly. Um, faced with a refusal by other governments to cooperate with this refugee problem that the British have, um, in 46 the Attlee government accepts that they're going to have to bring them to the UK and they pass the Polish Resettlement Act because immigration legislation at that point simply can't accommodate uh People in this nu- in this number, nor with the condition, nor could they meet the conditions laid down mm-hmm. in order to be um, allowed the right um, of residence. So the Polish Resettlement Act is passed, and that um, creates a, a kind of civilian core um, that the soldiers are invo- invited um, to join. And the purpose of that is to integrate them um, into um, British society. Now, a great deal of pressure is put on them to return to Poland. And, um, and uh, you know, ministers talk about their patriotic duty to their country and so on and so forth. But these guys and are not going to return to a Sovietised Poland mm-hmm. um, and are adamant they're not going to do this. And we need to remember, of course, who they are and how they came to be in this position and so on. You know, these are former Soviet POWs. Their yeah. families were deported. Um, their whole political identity, in a sense, is based on their opposition, hostility um, towards the Soviet Union. And so um, this peculiar thing, 46, 47, Poles start to arrive from India and Africa and Italy um, in Britain. And in Devon. And which, in which, Devon. Which brings us back to your family. in Devon. Yeah, they are uh, a former American uh, camp on the edge of Dartmoor, a place called Plasterdown which is just a patch of moorland now. Um, uh, the Americans go home and the Poles are moved in. Um, and it just so happens that that's where Rafael ends up. And um, when the mother and their girls, you know, show up um, in Southampton a year or so later, I think it's not quite as long as a year later, he goes to collect them um, and brings them home, so to speak, um, to Devon. Mm. Um, and, and they buy, a,
0: well, they get farmland and they... Yeah. Yep, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. And this is where you, of course, we come back to the beginning of the book again. Yeah. This is where you spend your childhood holidays.
1: Exactly. They managed to acquire a group of them. It's not just them alone. They managed to acquire yeah, the small farm. And um, I was going to say live there happily ever after. It's not quite as simple as that. These um. things never are. But then again,
0: when you've been deported, etc., cetera, et you mm-hmm. and you've, you've gone through the Second World War in all manner of places, I'm sure that it was possibly a little bit easier than that but uh, anyway to, to, to it's a, it's a fantastic story as i said it's a, it's one of the most astonishing pieces um areas of history anyway but to get a personal story that threads it all together is 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 invaluable so i thoroughly enjoyed reading the book uh, i wanted to, to to ask you one final question uh and that is and possibly your your um your expertise in ireland feeds into this but is there anything that you've read over the last year or so that's really changed how you think about Europe or any part of Europe
1: um, a book that I, I that does actually combine Ireland and Poland is a really interesting book by a guy called um, Tim Wilson um, called frontiers of violence and he looks at what he think what we might be able to think of as two frontiers or two borderlands being Ulster and upper Upper Silesia and mm-hmm. the different the, and the ways in which violence functions um, um, in the immediate post-First World War years um, in those two um, regions. Why, he's asking, why, he asks, is, is, is the violence in Upper Silesia between Germans and Poles so much nastier, believe it or not, um, than it is between Unionists and Nationalists? And I've Catholics seen the graveyards in Upper Silesia yeah, right. from okay. after the war, yeah. Yeah. Why is it so much nastier in that area? And he makes a very... So he, This is a piece of pioneering um, comparative history... Um, and he makes the argument that um, it's actually the fluidity um, of Polish and German identities mm-hmm. in in the region which makes for greater violence. As violence becomes a way of defining community mm-hmm. as, as imposing frontiers. Whereas, um, although things are pretty nasty in 1919, 1920, 1921, um, in Ulster, comparatively it's actually... In intercommunal violence is actually much less brutal. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think it makes a quite convincing case that it's because the two communities are so clearly defined, that the markers of difference are are so established, um, that the function of violence um, is, in the sense it it, that violence doesn't have to play, it doesn't play the same sort of definitional role um, as it does in western mm. the western polish borderlands rather than the eastern ones we were talking about well earlier.
0: With, with, with so many ethnic questions i suppose not so much settled but uh bedded down for a while they still exist as we all mm. know anyone who studies hungarian or slovakian or, or romanian politics will, will know a bit about all of this um perhaps that's uh, that's something that we need to bear in mind for the coming centuries yes <laughs> <I suspect laughs> anyway, <so. laughs> anyway uh, just remains for me to say thank you. Matthew Kelly, author of uh, Finding Poland from Tavistock to Ruzdova and Back Again, one of the best books I've, I've read for the last year. So thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thank you. And that was my interview with Matthew Kelly. For more, go to newbooksnetwork.com or find podcasts on Europe, Africa, history and many other subjects from us on iTunes. From me, Nicholas Walton, goodbye for now.